Uh, before we get going here, I want to say a word to the parents. You know, I'm a huge fan of having all ages together in worship, but I really want to be sensitive to where you're at with your kids and honor your role as the primary teachers of your kids. And that's why I alerted you to today's subject, so that it could be your choice whether you kept your kids in for the sermon or not. But I'd like us to open our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read four verses today, so please stand with me as we read God's Word. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 4. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And Lord, you are sovereign and you are in control, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. The Word of God is strong and powerful, and I know God's going to speak to us this morning. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in a time where school teachers got away with a lot more than they do today. There was plenty of good, but thank God that some things have changed. My sixth grade teacher had what he called his attention stick. It was approximately three feet long and made out of metal. A three feet long metal rod. Now, if we talked out of turning class, or if the class got out of control, he would yell at us, and then he would whack his stick on someone's desk. It actually left a dent every time he used it. Now, I'm not sure if it was because I sat up near the front, or because I talked so much in class, but by the end of the year, my desk had so many ripples on it, you thought it was the ocean. It was, uh, it was dented for sure. But when we talk about personal ethics, and especially things like marriage and purity, it can be kind of like using an attention stick. And it gets people's attention. And it's easy to make this, or to view this, as something that, you know, you better fall in line or else. And, and that's just not the point. That We will miss the point if we take it like that. This is not one of those, you know, eat your veggies type of things. Uh, It's not one of these better do this or you'll get it kind of things. It's a heart issue. It's a matter of the soul. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says that we're to abstain from fleshly lusts. And it's not just so we won't get in trouble. (laughs) It's, it says that we should abstain from fleshly lusts because they wage war against our souls. There's a war going on, a spiritual battle, and when we don't abstain from fleshly lusts, we leave ourselves open because they wage war against our souls. And ethical issues are heart issues. It matters of the heart. 
Now, it's in the context of brotherly love that we address the uh, idea of marriage and sexual purity today. And the words of Hebrews 13.1 ring loud and clear. Let love of the brethren continue. Love is the defining mark that we belong to Jesus. Jesus said that all people will know that we're his disciples if we have love one for another. And love is linked to purity. Within the biblical guidelines, marriage and the physical relationship within marriage is sacred. The problem is, the wrong people are engaging in what is reserved only for husbands and wives. God has set the boundaries and they're within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. God has set the boundaries, but it couldn't be clearer. But sin has muddied the waters. We live in a world that is saturated by sex and starved for love. Starved for true love. Valentine's Day came and went this week, and with it many people's hopes and dreams for true love. I mean, everybody wants to be cherished and honored and respected. But the U.S. today has become a place where sex is cheapened, where cohabitating is the norm, where marriage is often a, a minority relationship. And so few dare proclaim, thus says the Lord, when it relates to marriage and sexuality for fear of being called hateful or irrelevant or probably most prevalent because most of us struggle with purity ourselves. And we fear feeling or being labeled a hypocrite. And we may abstain from outright sexual sin, but sin is crouching at the door of the TV screen, the cell phone, the Outlook inbox, just to click away. Nevertheless, Hebrews 13.4 makes it clear. God wants us to honor marriage and seek purity. God wants us to honor marriage and to seek purity. So let's look first at the idea of honoring marriage. Honor is a, a great word. It means of great worth, esteemed, especially dear. It means to respect, to value, to consider something or someone very precious. The Greek word timios is, is used of valuable material possessions. It's used of God's promises. It's used of respected teachers. It's even used of the blood of Jesus, the precious blood, the valued, the honorable blood of Jesus. And as used in, in chapter 13, verse 4 here, the idea is that marriage is not a, an arrangement that can be treated lightly uh, or flippantly, but one that should be considered of great value, uh, considered of great worth, considered very precious. Let marriage be very precious to all of us, is the idea. See, what happens is often we inflate things in our thinking and we, we blow them out of proportion. We make them bigger than they really are. But in the case of marriage, it's the other way around. Marriage is devalued in our society. And whatever is valuable will be subject to attack. Marriage in the first century was attacked. In the ancient world, it was attacked on two fronts primarily. One by asceticism and the other by libertinism. Uh, ascetics felt that marriage was a hindrance 
to spiritual progress and devotion. And they denied that God was in any way pleased or honored by the marriage union. They said God is not glorified by marriage. Some even said this, that virginity was, necess- was necessary for Christian perfection. To grow in Christ, you had to be a virgin, they said. Now this developed into second century uh, Montanist movement, uh, which later influenced celibate monasticism. But they implicitly dishonored marriage when they denied marriage and the institution. But the biggest challenge, the biggest attack on marriage, the biggest assault on marriage uh, came from the libertines who explicitly dishonored marriage. They treated it as unnecessary. They treated it as irrelevant as they pursued their sexual desires. And in some areas of the Greco-Roman world, men were expected to take mistresses as their confidants and their partners. Things haven't changed much today. The main attacks on marriage today are, are primarily libertine. Uh, People redefining marriage to make it what they want it to be. And they make it into a provisional arrangement. Regardless of orientation. That can be broken at any time for any reason. And it devalues the institution. Now the meaning of uh, verse 4 here is, is a bit of a puzzle. In the original Greek there is no verb in, the, in verse 4. Uh, the verb of being is omitted. It's left out. It literally reads this. Marriage in honor among all. In fact, if you read a New American Standard Bible like I do, you'll notice that part of the verse is in italics. Every time the NASB translators had to fill in the meaning, they used italics saying this was not in the original Hebrew or Greek. So the verse literally reads, marriage in honor among all. So what does it mean? Uh, the, the challenge for translators is to whether it's a present indicative that should be added. For example, um, marriage is honorable in all. It makes it a declaration and also a, a um, correction for the error of asceticism. Saying, for those who said marriage is not honorable. So the King James Version translated it, marriage is honorable among all or in all. Now, the other question is, okay, maybe it's not the present indicative that needs to be added. Maybe it's the present imperative that should be added. What does that make it? It makes it an exhortation or a command. Uh, For example, the ASV uh, puts in, let marriage be honorable among all. The New American Standard, let marriage be held in honor among all. The NIV puts it, marriage should be honored by all. And the context is really important. When we come to Scripture, we've always got to look at the context. And an exhortation fits the context. In this case, the, the King James got it wrong, but the other, the other translations got it right. It's an exhortation because it fits the context. Let love of the brethren continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners. And marriage is to be held in honor. Let it be held in honor among us. Let it be counted precious. So... Why do we honor marriage? What's the reason that God would want us to honor marriage as as an institution to be esteemed highly? Well, the primary reason is that, that God established it. God established it at creation. It's God's design. Marriage is God's gift. It's God's mystery. 
It's the first institution established by God. It's, it's uh, the primary building block for, for the church and for the, for the society. So God established it and also God honors it. God honors it in Scripture. Jesus honored it by performing his first uh, miracle at a wedding. The Holy Spirit spoke through the writers of the New Testament to give it a place of honor, using it as an example, as a picture of Christ and his church. God established it. He honors it in Scripture, so there's no justification for dishonoring it. You see, when marriage is dishonored, God is dishonored. But when marriage is honored, God is honored. But how do we honor marriage? There are many ways to do so. One way is to recognize its importance. Recognize its importance and keep it in proper perspective. But how important is marriage to God? So much so that when he formed the first family, he gave certain instructions that still stand today. In fact, go to Genesis chapter 2 with me. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. God gave certain instructions that reorient a person when they enter into marriage around new priorities. In verse 18, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him or corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed it up at the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, wow. That's in the original Hebrew, by the way. I'm actually not joking. Uh, it is an exclamation. When, she, when he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he was saying, wow. And, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's what God laid out. That is, that's, the, that's the instructions he gave out. When, when entering to the marriage relationship, to the covenant of marriage, we're called first to receive our mate as God's gift, as God's provision for us. So we're first to receive them from the hand of God. Secondly, we're instructed to leave our father and our mother, to to leave our our home of origin, to, to cut the umbilical cord of dependency and allegiance, And we continue to honor our parents. The fifth command is not thrown out the window. It still stands. We continue to honor our parents, but our primary loyalty is now to our spouse. Our primary loyalty and allegiance is now to our spouse. And then we are in turn to cleave to our spouse, which means to be joined. It means to stick together like glue. It means to become one. 
to be together, to stay together, to form a bond that cannot be broken by internal or external influences. And most marital problems can be traced back to not following God's process of receiving, leaving, and cleaving. Most marital problems can be traced right back there to God's original instructions. Now, another way we can honor marriage is to respect its purpose. To respect its purpose. What is the biblical purpose of marriage? Well, first there's the idea of mutual completion, which we read in in Genesis 2.18. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. God saw everything that he made and said, this is good, 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 very good. But then he said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable to him, for him, which will, will fit him, will be appropriate to him, will correspond to him. So marriage is first for mutual completion um, and secondly for multiplying a godly legacy. Having children. It's seen in God's command to be fruitful and multiply in uh, chapter 1 and verse 28 of Genesis. And marriage is also for mirroring God's image, for reflecting God's glory. In Genesis chapter 1, if you're still in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. In fact, it's, it's a bigger topic. Much more time needed. But the triune God is a great example, a model for relationships. It's a great study to take uh, the Trinity and especially the, re- the, the marriage relationship. God himself being a model for that relationship. So we honor marriage by, by recognizing how important it is, by, by uh, respecting its purpose, and also by fulfilling our responsibility. There are responsibilities in marriage, as we all know. Ephesians 5 gives mutual responsibilities. Ephesians 5. Now, there are mutual responsibilities, meaning both the husband and the wife need to to own these responsibilities. And verse 21 of Ephesians 5 says, uh, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a, a mutual submission and respect that ought to be. And while there is mutual responsibility, God expects men to lead. God expects the husband to be a spiritual leader in his home. That means not that you have to be a Hebrew and Greek scholar and do all these, you know, in-depth Bible studies with your family and what have you. What being a spiritual leader in the home means is that you follow Jesus closely. You trust him. You lead by example. You be a servant leader rather than an authoritarian leader. That when we servant lead, we don't have to demand for people to respect us. The respect comes because we we lay down our lives for the other. 
willing to give up our rights and our life for our family's good. It means we're intentional about initiating and engaging our household in God's word and and in prayer and in fellowship and in outreach. That we don't leave that up to others in the body of Christ or even the church to set it up for us. But we, we initiate those things. We engage in those things. Men must be servant leaders. And husbands, the best way to be a servant leader is to just simply love your wife. Love your wife. That's what God says. Husbands, love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and, and gave himself up for her. Encourage her to use her spiritual gifts in any way that God sees fit. Uh, wives are responsible to respect their husbands. Ephesians 5.33 says, See to it that the husband love his wife and the wife respect her husband. But see, to do that, both the husband and wife have got to focus on what's best for the other. They've got to focus on what can be given rather than what, what can be received. Most of the time, though, we're thinking, what can I get and why am I not getting it? But when we think, what can I give? The picture changes, the perspective changes, and we find it more, more conducive to showing that love and showing that respect. Then we look to compliment rather than compete. We look to cooperate with God according to who he made our spouse to be. Now this is not just for those who are married. God expects everyone to honor marriage. Our verse for today says, let marriage be held in honor by all. No one's exempt. Every man, woman, boy, girl, married and unmarried is called to honor marriage. To respect the marriage vows and respect the boundaries that they create. And God wants marriage to be held in honor by everyone. And he is really serious about purity. What does it mean uh, to seek purity? Seeking purity means we want to live a pure life in in, um, body, mind, and soul. In all areas. You see, verse 4 goes on to say, And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let it be pure. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now the term marriage bed is a euphemistic word for the physical marital relationship. It's to be guarded. It's to be kept pure and undefiled. But see, adultery and sexual immorality defile marriage. It dishonors and devalues what God intends to be highly esteemed. And the world today is is obsessed with sex. Like never before. And sexual activity outside of marriage is thought acceptable and healthy by many. Have you ever, can you imagine a world where, where wrong is right and right is wrong? Can you imagine a world like that? We're living in it. We are living in the world where, where people consider wrong to be right and right to be wrong. And up against that is biblical truth that people say, well, that's outdated. That's irrelevant. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Only sexual activity within marriage is pure. All sexual activity outside of marriage is impure, is not pure. 
And the exhortation that we see in this verse uh, is grounded in an exhortation of consideration of the consequences. It's grounded in the consideration of the consequences of dishonoring marriage. The last part of the verse says that fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Fornicators are the sexually immoral. The Greek word is pornos. It's where we get our word pornography from. It's anyone who engages in sexual relationship outside of marriage. And adulterers is a pretty clear word. It's those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows. Those who are married who are unfaithful. Someone who betrays their marriage vows. So these two words together, these two adverbs together, what they do is they cover everyone. (laughs) Uh, It covers all who engage in lifestyles characterized by forbidden practices. And therefore dishonor marriage and defile the marriage bed. And, and this verse says that the judgment of God awaits them. I don't know what judgment that is, specifically. But the scripture is clear that it's very serious to God. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, early in the chapter, and verse 3 it says that immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Over in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, we read these words, verse 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Transgress and defraud means to go too far, to step over the line. Because, it says, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we solemnly told you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The scripture's clear. That judgment is reserved. Earlier in Hebrews, we saw that judgment is reserved for those who defile the most holy blood of the covenant. Christ's blood. And now we see it's for those who do not pursue a life of sanctification that the covenant demands. So, what do we who, who often uh, feel so impure do with this? Well, there is a key to purity. There is, there is a key. There is, there is an answer. It's found in a lot of different places, but I want to take you to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. See, the key is, is in getting a life. Getting a life and making sure it's Jesus who's your life. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, or literally since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. But the idea is, get a new heart. Be intimately acquainted with Jesus to such an extent through faith. And he will give you new desires. Allow God to reorient your life around Jesus. He'll give you a new identity. That we're saints. We're saved by grace. So the key to purity, really, it's, it's twofold. One is getting a new life. Get a life. And it's Jesus. And the other part is wear your new clothes. You got a whole wardrobe of new clothes that Jesus has provided. If you're born again... We don't always like to wear our new clothes, do we? The old clothes just feel so comfy. But we need to wear our new clothes and put them on daily. Look at uh, Colossians 3.12. So then, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on. What are the new clothes of the Christian? Here they are. A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the, ri- the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Whatever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We wear those clothes every day. There'll be purity in our life. Purity is a daily challenge that needs daily attention. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul said, you know, I, I'm fearing for you, lest the serpent, as he deceived Eve, your, your hearts would be led astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. See, we will all face temptation on a daily basis. It's important to remember that temp- to be tempted is not sin. But to entertain the temptation is sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul instructed Timothy to flee youthful lusts. And some of those youthful lusts follow us into adulthood. And, and we're not to toy with them. And see, willpower alone won't do it. A ring is not enough, in marriage or before. Why do so many married people break their marriage vows? Why do so many young people who intended to remain virgins until they were married fall? Why don't they wait, even when they said they would? Well, I don't think it's the initial decision. I think it's the follow-through on that commitment. It's the follow-through. That, as Paul said, we must buffet our body, bring it into subjection, uh, just just like Paul did. It means restraint. It means discipline. It means the strength to wait. It means a complete yielding to the will of God. When we're yielding to the will of God, we're not yielding to our own will. And often the question amongst those who are unmarried and struggling with temptation is, where do you draw the line? How far can I go? Where does God draw the line? See, if you have to ask, you've already gone too far. If you're asking the question, you've already gone too far. Because God draws the line in the thoughts of the heart. And that question came out of your mouth. So you've already gone too far. 
What did Jesus say about it? Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and, and verse 27. Here's what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. And verse 3. Some of the Pharisees uh, came to Jesus and said, Hey, um, is it all right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Sounds like the day in which we live. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read what he, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they no, are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus spoke the words that we, we say at the end of every marriage uh, ceremony. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Taking every thought captive is not an easy thing, is it? Every thought? Oh boy. But you know what's cool about that? God knows. And you can start right now. I can start right now taking every thought captive. We've got to watch out what we allow into our minds. It's like, that little, it's like the, the kid's song, uh, Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little hands what you touch. Careful little feet where you go. And all that. We must be discerning. And, and, and also, if you're not married and, and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay pure until I'm married... You've got to be careful and discerning about who you, you tell that to. Because some people will take that as a challenge to try to get you to fall. And, and there are times that we can get so caught up in the attention that taking a stand brings that we forget why we were even taking the stand to begin with. You see, our good intentions have got to be coupled with relational connections and accountability and most importantly, Christ dependence, God dependence. There is practical help available as we, as we pursue this as, as a body. Uh, there are mentors, older people that have gone down the road before us that want to help. There are counselors. There are marriage seminars and the like. But the bottom line on purity is this. We've got to be very, very careful who we entrust our heart to. Who we entrust our heart to. If you're married, keep your sexual activity between you and your spouse alone in an atmosphere of love and respect. If you're not married, abstain from all sexual activity. It's that simple and that difficult. But it's that simple. Now, when it comes to marriage and purity, the church has a role. The church should be both a guardrail and a medical clinic. A guardrail positioned at the top of the cliff, keeping people from going over. And a medical clinic at the bottom of the hill for those who've crashed and burned. See, if you've blown it in the area of marriage and purity, 
and are repentant, there is hope. There is grace. Humble yourself before God. God does not condone sin, nor does he condemn his beloved. If you've been somewhere you're not supposed to go, don't go back. Don't go in saying, hey, um, I'm going to sin so I can get more grace. Don't go in saying, I know it's a sin, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway because God's going to forgive me. It's a very, very, very dangerous place to be. But if you've blown it, come clean with God and man. Psalm 32. I just want to take you to one more place. Psalm 32. A word of, of, uh, of hope and, and forgiveness and, and grace from God. Psalm 32 talks of the, the forgiveness that God gives. Verse 1 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You see, for those who come to God, there is forgiveness and assurance and and promise. And it comes down to the choices we make. It comes down to the choices we make because immorality and impurity perverts theology. We can't be self-centered and Christ-centered at the same time. It's not possible. And so we must make the daily Moment-by-moment decision to walk in the Spirit and not carry out the desires of the flesh. See, we're called to show a stark contrast. To show a a brilliant contrast between the ugly, self-gratifying love of the world and the beautiful, self-giving love of Christ. Evidenced by His ultimate sacrifice on the cross where He substituted Himself in our place for our sin, to pay for our sin. And we're called to portray Christ to our spouse and to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors and to our relatives and to strangers. As Richard Phillips put it, unless Christians are willing and able to be different at precisely the point of our society's greatest depravity, we cannot expect our testimony to be taken seriously and our own profession of faith is brought into question. See, there, may, there, there is probably no greater gauge of, of a spiritually healthy church than the health of its marriages and the purity of all its people. One of our greatest outreach tools is married couples faithfully, faithfully dealing with the struggles of marriage in God's power and grace, by God's power and grace. And Christians and Christian couples and singles keeping the marriage bed pure through self-control and through godly restraint. Let's pray together. Lord God, when we come 
to you, we are exposed for who we really are. And all our masks and all of our coverings are, are taken away. And Lord, we thank you that we can come to you, that we have the privilege to, to come to you in prayer and to, and to ask you to help us to be pure, to help us to keep our vows, to not, to not play around with sin. And Lord, we also thank you that we can come to you for forgiveness. That you are the only one that we can go to when we know we've blown it and we know we need a fresh start. And we thank you, Lord God, for those truths. We thank you for that reality. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.